Welcome to Corporate Governance at LSE. My name is Tom Kirchmeier, and I have with me here Ralph de Haas from the EBRD, who is Director of Research at the EBRD, to talk about global banking. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, what does the EBRD actually do? Okay, so, so EBRD stands for European Bank for Reconstruction yes. and Development. Yes. Um, we're an international financial institution or a, a multilateral development bank. Um, we were established um, after, basically after the fall of the Berlin mm. Wall to help formerly communist countries to transition uh, on the path towards uh, market, well-functioning mm. market economies. And so we do that by investing mainly in the private sector of uh, a large number of countries. Um, pretty much ranging from Poland all the way to Russia and Mongolia. Uh, more recently, we've also expanded into Turkey and into a number of countries in North Africa. Banking is very important to you. Mm -hmm. you, know, you also work on banking. So foreign banks moved in a, in a big way into Eastern Europe. Was it any good? What do we know about it? Um, so, so Eastern Europe is, a, for a variety of reasons, I think a very interesting region. Mm. One reason is that um, the penetration by foreign banks into this region is uh, pretty much the highest across the, across the world. So there are very few re regions where foreign banks are so important as in um, emerging Europe. Um, and by and large, I think this has been a very um, positive development. So what we saw is at the beginning of this transition process that I mentioned earlier on, is that um, there were banks in these countries, but they were only lending to large, mainly state-owned companies. Um, and by allowing foreign banks to enter the region, we've seen an increase in competition. And we've seen that a lot of these banks have actually started to lend to smaller clients and eventually also to retail clients. So because of these foreign banks, the financial system or the banking system, if you will, has become much more diverse and much more inclusive. And that has been um, a very positive development for, for economic growth. So market entry was good. Mm. Has the crisis changed anything? Um, well, I think it has certainly changed people's views about the role of foreign mm. banks. Um, so there's this efficiency argument, uh, more and better lending that I just mentioned. There is the, uh, another argument that a lot of people, including myself, made before the crisis, namely that having these foreign banks' presence, which are mainly subsidiaries of large global banks, also contributed to financial stability in this region. So we saw during local crises, um, in particular at the time of the Russian crisis, for instance, that countries that had a lot of these foreign banks were actually relatively stable. Uh, and the reason for that is that these banks continue to lend because they could draw on the financial resources of their strong parent banks abroad. Um, that is something that um, a lot of people highlighted as an additional benefit, if you will, of foreign, foreign bank uh, entry. And what we've seen during the recent crisis is that um, that process can also go in re into reverse. And that is something that we knew from earlier crises. We knew, for instance, that Japanese banks that were very active in the US, when they were confronted with problems in Japan, they quickly retrenched and reduced their lending in the US. And so we're currently seeing um, a similar process, but on a much larger scale in emerging Europe. So we see a lot of these foreign bank subsidiaries um, still present, they haven't, they haven't left the country, but they have really re reduced their activities and cut back their lending. Um, and so one of the reasons for that is that their parent banks, in, uh, mainly in Western Europe, have been hit hard by the crisis and they need a lot of their capital at home rather than in these, uh, in these countries where we operate. Mm. So that's actually not very good for these countries because suddenly uh, credit is missing and that's what we have observed. Exactly. That there's less credit in these countries. Yes. But then at the same time more debt. Because yes. Well, we've seen, yeah. we've seen a lot of these countries that um, before the crisis, so let's say until 2007, 2008, 
there was nominal credit growth of about 20, 30, sometimes even 40%. So that clearly was very high and, and, um, and not sustainable. Um, and we see that it, during the crisis, but also in the, the couple of years that we are past the crisis now, we see that that has actually come down to around zero to one, two percent. So very low, almost absent um, uh, credit growth. So that means that there's very little fresh credit available for firms um, and for households in this region. Um, at the same time, somewhat paradoxically, we also see that a lot of um, private sector, uh, parts of the private sector, so both households and firms still have a huge debt on their balance sheet and that debt has actually only increased not because they are borrowing more because there's very limited new credit but because the value of the existing debt has actually gone up and so there are a number of reasons for that one of them which is quite important is that we've seen in a lot of these countries um, uh, exchange rate depreciations or devaluations which have added to the real burden of this of this debt so we get in we've we've we're really in a very difficult situation at the moment where we have high debt of the private sector, but at the same time firms that want to invest find it very difficult to get access to fresh credit because a lot of these foreign banks that are present are actually more focused on their clients at home rather than um, their clients mm. in, these, uh, in these host countries. Very interesting. What is the EBRD doing about it? Well, we try to, um, we try to help banks that, um, um, that do want to borrow more internationally, okay. so also including foreign bank subsidiaries that maybe have reduced access now to uh, parent bank funding. We lend to these, um, to these banks and we, um, we, we try to help them to um, sort of then on-land that money to local companies. And so we do that in particular for small and medium-sized enterprises. Uh, what we've seen during this crisis, but in other crises as well, that small and medium-sized enterprises are usually the ones that are hit much harder by a lack of credit as compared to, uh, to large corporates. So we really try to help banks to, um, you know, uh, to give them access to credit, so our credit, and they can then on-land that to local uh, local clients. So that's one of the things that we are that we are currently doing. Um, in some cases, we also try to come up with more systemic solutions. And uh, one of the issues that we see at the moment is that a lot of these banks themselves have very high portfolios of non-performing loans on their balance sheet. And so, before these banks are actually willing and able to start, you know, giving fresh credit to companies, they will have to get rid of that bad credit. And so, one of the uh, things that we are doing is to to help countries and banking sectors to uh, come up with solutions to reduce that, uh, that bad debt problem. Mm. Now, a completely different topic. You have this very nice academic paper on relationship banking. Maybe mm -hmm. just tell us a little bit about it. Um, okay, so th this is a paper. Um, it's, it's a co-authored paper with Neeltje van Horen, Torsten Beck and, and Hans de Grijze. Um, it was partly inspired by the, the idea that there was this very sharp reduction in bank credit and a lot of academic literature focused very much on the liability side of banks. So the, the idea, of course, being that banks that had been operating with a very thin deposit base before the crisis um, and had depended a lot on wholesale funding, those were the banks that really had to reduce their credit a lot in, uh, in emerging Europe. Um, so we know that there's a lot of evidence for that. Um, so basically the question that we wanted to focus on is if we now move our attention from the liability side of banks' balance sheets to the asset side and we're going to look at banks' lending techniques, can that explain also why some banks are actually better able to continue to lend to clients as compared to other banks? Um, and so what we do is we look at a large data set of firms, a large data set on bank branches, and we see whether firms that are physically located close to branches of what we call relationship lenders, whether they have easier access to credit during the crisis as compared to firms that are located to what we call transaction lenders. Now, 
these relationship lenders are banks that really, before the crisis, made an effort to invest in getting to know their clients. So they often had long-term relationships with these, with these firms. They um, generated a lot of information. They really knew what these firms were all about. They know the management, they know the business plans. Um, and so that's one way of lending to firms, really knowing your customer. And then there's a very different type of banks, um, which is also very prevalent in our region, which are what we call transaction lenders. So these are banks that you know, don't make too much of an effort to actually get to know their clients. They usually lend just once or twice. They rely a lot on collateral and they rely a lot on hard information. So they either use information from a credit registry or they use some credit scoring model. And it's very almost like semi-automated process of, of lending. What's better? So what we find is that before the crisis or during new normal times, it really doesn't matter much. So firms have, you know, there's easy access to whatever bank you go. Um, the difference only appears during the crisis. When the crisis hits, we very clearly see that firms that have easier access to these relationship lenders actually continue to be able to borrow. Firms that only have access to these transaction banks, they are much more likely to be cut off from credit. And so you can almost think about this as, a, as an insurance mechanism. So before the crisis, the firms have to make an effort to give a lot of information to the banks. They sometimes also pay a premium in terms of interest rate. But then when a crisis hits and uncertainty goes up, in return for that, they now have a higher likelihood of, of getting credit. Um, and so that added stability, I think, is very interesting. And it's also completely independent of the financing structures of these banks. So that, that story, I think, still holds. But what we show in the paper is that in addition to financing, the, the, the financing model of the bank, the lending model, matters a lot too. Makes a lot of sense. So let's talk a little bit about the future. Mm -hmm. We're all interested in the future. So where does the future bring us in terms of banking? In terms of cross-border banking in, yeah. in, in Europe? Well, there, there are a few things that we're currently observing. And I think those are trends that are, that are still playing, uh, playing out. So one of the things that we see is, um, and that this has been you know, observed by, by many people, is uh, an increased fragmentation. So we see that a lot of banks before the crisis were lending to clients in other countries, so cross-border lending, even if they didn't have a local subsidiary or local branch there. Um, that is a type of cross-border activity that has really retrenched very rapidly. I mentioned that earlier mm. on already. So we see that um, also partly because of political pressures, banks have reduced um, this cross-border lending. Um, we see that in return, uh, or in, in addition to that, that corporate bond markets, and particular cross-border bond borrowing, if you will, bond issuance, has gone up very significantly. So bond markets, again, as in some previous episodes, seem to play almost, play almost like a, a spare wheel um, role. That if banks reduce their lending, some firms at least manage to actually go and issue bonds to, to get um, access to debt funding. Um, and finally, one of the, the trends that I think is, is, is very interesting um, is the, the emergence of new players. So we've seen that American banks have really increased their presence in cross-border lending in the, in the EU. Um, I also expect that Chinese banks are actually going to be, become much more important. So we see that Chinese companies, state-owned companies, but also increasingly private-owned companies, are increasing their investment in Central Asia, in um, Eastern Europe and also in Western Europe. My prediction would be that Chinese banks as we've seen in the past with other, with other countries, are going to follow their clients and they're going to lend to these Chinese companies abroad, but gradually they will also expand their client base and start to lend to clients, in uh, European clients, if you will, in the, in the region. So I think that's not a very interesting uh, development to watch. Overall, very interesting. Thanks for coming in, Rolf. Thanks very much. And thank you for watching.